Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Inside ND Sports Podcast. I'm Tyler James, and I'm joined once again by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together, we cover Notre Dame football, recruiting, and more for InsideNDSports.com on the Rivals Network. Notre Dame's coaching staff for the 2024 season appears to be set, with defensive coordinator Al Golden signing a four-year contract and Max Bola promoted to linebackers coach. We are closing in on spring practice, but a pair of two sport athletes are taking advantage of their time away from football Drake Bowen with baseball and Jordan Faison with lacrosse. To discuss that and other burning Notre Dame football topics, we reached out to Evan Sharpley, who played football and baseball during his Irish career. Evan, thanks for joining us. Yeah, for sure, guys. Thanks for having me. Of course. What um, Before we get into the two-sport talk, Evan, I, I want to know what you think of Riley Leonard. How good is the former Duke quarterback? Do you believe he's the no-doubt starter for the Irish? I mean, I think at this point right now, that's probably where I'm leaning. I know, you know, you could get into spring practice and something different happens, but usually if you bring a guy like that, his caliber in, it's had success. And, you know, he's proven, he's got the experience and maturity. You know, I I think that if you're reading the tea leaves, that'd be where my money's at right now at this time. Evan, you were involved in real and imagined quarterback competitions during your playing day. <laughs> and, and I yes. wondered, I wondered when you watch the, how, at least going into this, do you think that this is going to be an actual competition? Cause I get asked this all the time. And then the second part of it is how do you tell whether it is or not looking from the outside in, because you know that the coaches can do things to make the media think, see something different. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's nothing wrong with competition, right? I mean, competition is good. It, it, it breeds development. Um, but with the tricky part is as a coach, if you're saying there, there is a competition, but behind closed doors, there's not, you lose a lot of credibility as a coach. And, you know, I know I'm not the only one that has experienced that at the college level. It's not uncommon. Um, and so I, you know, I hope in this case that even even if it isn't, you know, a competition per se to, to be the starter, those conversations with the quarterbacks need to be had behind closed doors. So that's the tough part. I think kind of what you're getting at, guys, is from from our perspective, we we can't really decipher that, right? Unless you're there for all the practices, you're sitting in the meeting rooms. It's going to be pretty tough. Um, to, to get a feel for where, where that is. But uh, like I said, you bring a guy like Riley Leonard in, he's not going to sit the bench too. That's the other thing is I, I believe they, they're going to have to do everything in their power to make sure that he's the starter, whether that, you know, whether he earns it or not. <laughs> now I'm not saying maybe two or three games in and he's struggling, they could make a switch, but um, you know, it certainly is a fine line. And, and guys, as you know, probably better than me at this point too. I mean, the landscape of, of college athletics, specifically, you know, football is so much different now as far as transfer portal and, you know, guys come in, they expect to play right away where, you know, it used to be when I, when I was considering even, you know, putting my toe in the water to transfer, it was a big deal because I would have had to sit out a year unless I went to, you know, a, a D2 school or one double A. So, um, I just hope, and this is what I, you know, what, what I always say when you hear that come up, there's a, there's a quarterback competition and I know we all kind of giggle when that happens. Cause it seems like that's just been the case the last 10 plus years um, at, at Notre Dame. That's, that's usually been what's been going on is I just hope the coaches have those real conversations with these guys behind 
the closed doors so that there aren't any uncommunicated expectations where players are having to put on a false face to, to the media and to friends and family. Okay, speaking of false faces, and I'm not saying that this is happening in this day and age, but certainly in 2007, um, I, I would imagine your teammates knew who the best quarterback was at different points of that season and that offseason and so forth. And and if if that guy isn't playing and and, and there you, you can make an argument it should have been you more in 2007, how does the team react? Because what we we typically get and I won't say about this team but let's say during Brian Kelly, you know, it was like, "Oh, we love each other. We don't, you know, the quarterback room's close. We don't care who the starter is." Um but but what really is happening are people taking sides and and do you need to prove to your teammates that you are the best quarterback well yeah i mean that that year the difficult i mean winning cures all right i mean if yeah. you're winning it doesn't really matter but that year i mean and we're talking about more, 07 which was uh, the 07, ninth season yeah, and charlie right. weiss hated my guts that year too <laughs> <laughs> well it's okay you and i were in good company so <laughs> uh yeah it's uh you know it was weird just you know go, going into that season apparently there was a straw poll vote with the coaches on um who was going to be the starting quarterback and there was some flat given um and i have this from some some very good sources that uh, there was a single vote for me and uh, Weiss made a comment about, we're not, we're not trying to get sharply ready to play. We're trying to get Clawson and Jones ready to play. Um, and, and it does, it, there are kind of fissures with it in the team when guys start to pick up on those things. Um, but of course, when you start losing ball games like that, um, and I'm not saying that I would have cured the problem, you know, I think it, had we maybe gone in on, you know, the maturity and experience that I brought to start the year, you know, maybe we win six, seven, eight games. I don't think we lose nine. Um, and there's something to be said of that at the college level where, you know, guys having been in the program for a while, that's helpful. Uh, but, you know, I, it did start to happen. You know, it wasn't necessarily – super malicious but you know i had some i had a lot of upperclassmen guys that were you know seniors graduating you know even their parents after games and it kind of got it kind of got overplayed to a certain extent you know midway to towards the end of the season about man evan you should be playing so and, and i'm not gonna you know continually harp on on my side of it i just i think it is it, you as a coach you really have to if you don't have a feel for your locker room and your guys, when you're going through setting up this, this type of competition, you, what you don't want to have happen is you lose the locker room. Um, and, and losing obviously only exacerbates that. Evan, if, if you played under the current rules, would, would, would do you think you would have transferred out? You know, I've had people ask me that a few times and I, and I honestly, I think I probably would have, um, you know, in part because the barrier is a little bit easier. And I guess you could probably, I mean, look at like a guy like Drew Pine, right? Um, who is kind of playing the system, but is smart. 
I, you know, I was, I was close to graduating based on my, you know, the credits that I had accumulated and the prerequisites that I had. And, and that degree did mean a lot to me. I think that's another aspect right now too, that, that is unique is I don't know if athletes look at getting a degree from anywhere, like one specific degree as more meaningful than somewhere else. Um, and so for me, that was important, but you know, had the barrier been less difficult, I could have easily gone and played somewhere for a year, transferred back to Notre Dame for a semester, got my degree, and then probably had another year of eligibility to play somewhere else. So, yeah, I, I probably would have, under the current rules, at least tried that out, given that my window was closing pretty quickly. Evan, I, I am curious um, what your impressions of Buckner and Pine are, and do you think that there is – a future for them in football. I, I would assume Drew, once he gets his degree, is going to transfer again out of Arizona State. I mean, he already has, but I mean, he's going to find a football home. Buckner is not so clear. He's playing lacrosse. He's a kind of a deep reserve right now, but I would think football is still available for him. But what do you think about those guys? I mean, can they, do you think either one of them could kickstart their football career if they wanted to? Um, I think, you know, they're good. They're, they're average to above average college football players. I mean, I may even put myself kind of in that category. Like, you know, this is your window to continue playing. Um, you know, I, I would say, you know, maybe a practice squad guy at the next level, if they really love the game and then who knows, get into coaching or do something like that. But, uh, you know, I think that you see a lot of these, a lot, well, a lot of players, I get, again, similar to kind of my career track where, they're going to exhaust every opportunity they have to continue playing college athletics because it could be the end of the road for them. So that's kind of where I land, um, you know, with, with Buckner, I, I think it was just one of those things as far as consistency in the passing game, just did it progress to the level that he needed to be consistently, you know, having success, um, a, a danger with his feet, but, you know, it also is one of those things, if you get in the right program or the right system and, you know, somebody can accentuate those types of things and it doesn't necessarily need to be at a power five school either, those guys could go out there and have success for sure. There's a reason why they're in college playing football. You know, they're not they're not bad football players. It's just, you know, to be at that top five percent and, and, and be a, you know, be an All-American or a stud, not every not every guy's like that. Evan, what do you think Notre Dame should did or should have learned from the Sam Hartman experience last year, um, and how do you think that w will inform Notre Dame's ability to get the most out of Riley Leonard? Hey, that's a good question. I think what they should learn is it doesn't matter who you go and get in the quarterback transfer portal. So that's my worry going into this year, guys, is you know they probably went out and got one of the best available quarterbacks in the transfer portal again. And last year, I think Sam was probably the best available, too. And he had, you know, I, I'm curious how the season would have gone last year had he not been on the team. And certainly in some of those big games, if you, you probably asked him, too, he didn't he didn't play to the caliber that he wanted to. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, you look at his career stats and, and granted, you know, I think he's 30 years old now and. <laughs> You know, he's played a million snaps in college. Notre Dame so. does have a 30-year-old on the roster this year. He's a kicker. <laughs> That's, that is unbelievable. I love that so much. Um, yeah, so, 
it's again, that's my concern guys going into this year is what in watching some of the games last year. And then obviously kind of what's happened, you know, as the season, as it went to the off season and some guys transferring and leaving at key offensive positions or going to the draft, key offensive positions. Um, <laughs> there's some holes to fill. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of almost like the eyewash is that they got Riley Leonard when, hey, look over here, look over here. Who's going to be playing in those spots? So that's kind of what I what I took away from it. And it really is like free agency now. I mean, rosters can change from year to year. It's a little bit scary, I think, too. You know, I'm not saying that recruiting doesn't matter, but it doesn't probably matter as much as it did in the past because – you know, you can have an average class and fill some spots if you're if you're good in the portal in the offseason. So I don't know. That's where my question mark is right now. You know, Leonard could go out there and ball out, but if he doesn't have guys around him, it doesn't really matter. Evan, and and for people that don't remember ancient Notre Dame history, and it's not ancient to me, but it is to Tyler probably, in 2005 and 2006, Notre Dame went to BCS Bowls. Brady Quinn was the quarterback. Then the roster completely turned over, not just a quarterback. Um, and it was a four-person competition in the spring of 2007. Evan, Demetrius Jones, Zach Frazier, and Jimmy Clausen. Did I get that part right? Yes, that's right. Okay. So as we we translate those numbers, because that there were four at least on paper, really quality quarterbacks there. And and you don't have that a lot. You do have that this spring because Kenny Minchie and C.J. Carr are here as well. How does the staff develop those guys when they're trying to have a competition between Angeli and Riley Leonard? Well, the spring's a good time for that. Um, you know, you can you can get a lot more rotations in during the spring than you can in the fall. You know, most coaches, I would say, they want to wrap they want to wrap the competition up. Um, you know, spring summer. So by the time you get to fall camp, you really know you can develop your identity in the summer and the fall, right? You don't want to go into fall training camp with some of those things looming because ultimately the team does need to know like, Hey, who's our guy that's going to be in the huddle. Um, and, and, you know, there are also certain situations where if there is a two quarterback system and I know you guys know, I loathe that. Um, <laughs> but you know, if each guy is in a leadership position and you know, they have the respect of their teammates, there is a place where, where that can work. But I, I just ultimately don't think it's ideal. Right. I don't think that I don't think that you always want to be looking over your shoulder at the quarterback position. You know, if something bad happens, you want to have the the trust and confidence and um, the coaching staff that they're going to stick with it. Um, but in terms of getting, you know, getting the guys developed and Eric, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. And I know we've been talking about 07 a lot, um, but that, that was a major a major issue. Not even in 07, but in in 05 and 06, where, you know, Weiss's mentality was very much a a pro thought process. And, you know, you don't graduate when you're in the NFL. You could have the same roster roster for 10 years, right? 
you could have the same guy snapping the ball to you for 15 years. Um, and one of the, one of the big red flags going into 07 was the offensive line. And it wasn't that we had bad players. I mean, we had, we had guys on that, on that offensive line, you know, Sam Young, uh, Sullivan. I mean, these are guys that played in the NFL. I mean, I think Sullivan was a 10 year vet. Um, and, but it was one of those things where he was really the only upperclassman with experience. Everyone else, you know, Paul Duncan, trying to think of who else was on the right side of the line there, Turkovich. Um, you know, these were all guys um, that just hadn't played at all. And same at the quarterback position. I mean, I think, you know, when I got, when I got playing time as a, you know, as an underclassman, it was to go hand the ball off, right? That was it. It wasn't to go run the offense. And so, you know, that's, that's the thing is to get, you have to somehow create and get these younger guys meaningful experience and reps in practice. And if the opportunity presents itself to do the same thing in the game. Um, but, I, you know, I think for me, as a junior that year, that was really the first time I was in a competitive, a real competitive situation since I was a senior in high school. And that's tough. So, you know, my hope from this coaching staff is, and I got to think that of course it's, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be different than a, a pro thought process, but you got to get guys reps. So, you know, I'm sure that that's, that's something that they're talking about and discussing in their meetings, just to dial in what that rep count is to make sure that the development continues. And I hate to say it too, but a lot of it is on, is probably on the individual quarterbacks. They're going to have to stay after practice. You know, they're going to have to get there early. They're going to have to set stuff up in the summer where outside of the organized workouts and seven on seven, they're going to have to put extra work in to make sure that, you know, they're continuing to get better. One follow-up, because I've always kind of wanted to know this question. So this may be just for me and nobody else is interested in this. <laughs> but but we know that in August of 2007, Charlie was putting in a new offense that was geared to Demetrius Jones. And I'm wondering, as the team is watching this, I mean, Demetrius Jones ends up transferring very early in that season. He didn't even get on the bus to go to Michigan. And then he transfers to Cincinnati, and he's a bust there and ends up playing linebacker. And, and I'm thinking Charlie is pretty smart as far as quarterbacks go. How did how did it escape him that this wasn't a good idea? And did the team know, think that, you know, Charlie was leading you guys off a cliff in August? Man, it's uh... – a. I don't know who was in his ear or why, you know, why that happened. Um, <laughs> D Demetrius was a good buddy of mine, but, you know, <laughs> I, I I don't think he just couldn't throw the football. We'll just we'll, we'll say that. I'll, I'll just be real kind. I, I think I could have probably farted a ball, you know, out to a receiver better than he threw, threw a pass. And, I, you know, I felt – I felt tremendously bad. You know, he was, he was recruited. Um, he was recruited by Peter Voss, who I, I love Peter. And there is, you know, there are some things I think with his departure that were a little weird um, in, in bringing Clawson in. 
Um, but they were really high on, on Demetrius and, and Zach Frazier, right? And Zach, I mean, Zach wasn't extremely accurate, but man, he, you know, every ball was coming at a hundred miles an hour. I can tell you that. Um, but for whatever reason, I think, and I don't know if it was, you know, Mike Haywood, maybe kind of looking at some of the success he had at Texas. And then obviously with Pat White and Steve Slayton at West Virginia, the, the bottom line was we didn't have Pat White or Steve Slayton and we had a young offensive line and a young team. So it, it just, it was kind of the perfect storm on, I think a lot of us did question why, you know, why are we doing this? I mean, you look, you look at our quarterback room, if that didn't work, we had really two more traditional pro style quarterbacks in, in, in me and Clawson. Um, and, and that was the backup plan. You know, I was the backup in both our normal pro style offense and our, I don't even remember what we called it, but you know, I'm out there running zone reads and RPOs, which was all brand new. It was fun, but also, you know, my skill set at that time was much more, you know, stretch run, hard play action, uh, pocket passing where you're trying to get the ball to your playmakers. And it, that was the success that, that was that probably is the million dollar question is why was that decision made and who really made it? I mean, it's going to fall at Weiss's desk, but it is very curious that that was the timing because success in New England, you know, obviously running that offense, success the first two years with Quinn running that offense. Um, so I, you know, had we whether it was me or Clawson, because I just don't think. Jones would have fit into that pro style setup. He wouldn't have, you know, he probably would have completed eight passes out of 30 <laughs> attempts. In the game. So trying to set him up for success. Um, but, ha you know, had we made the decision to kind of stick with what we were doing again, whether it was me or it was, it was Jimmy, I think that I think it would have probably, it would have helped the offensive line tremendously who was young and inexperienced um, and I think too, for just our team identity, it would have cleaned things up, you know, quite a bit. I mean, I, I think that year is still the record for most sacks allowed. I, I could be wrong, but it was like 72. It, 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 it set the record. It has since been broken, but it did set the record, the NCAA <laughs> record. It's unbelievable. I mean, there were a couple of games afterwards, you know, well, it was Georgia Tech. I couldn't. I couldn't eat after the game because my jaw wouldn't open. <laughs> God, oh man. Um, Evan, getting to the baseball Drake Bowen side of things, what do you think is the hardest part for him right now when he's trying to earn a starting spot at linebacker with football team, but he also wants to continue to play baseball and find a role um, with the the squad over there. Yeah, I mean, the, the probably the most difficult part is how it's perceived, if there is any negative perception from the coaching staff. I think I got that a little bit. Um, and, and that's out of your control, right? I mean, you can do your best to try to schedule things, uh, but there's got to be some give and take. You know, my first two years, the schedule that I had uh, with baseball and football was not ideal. You know, I think I lost like 20 pounds. I mean, I felt like I couldn't hit a ball out of the infield when I was playing baseball <laughs> and it was just super weak on the football field. Um, 
you know, my classes, I mean, I was just continually tired. So it really wasn't until my junior year that we had to sit down and say, all right, there's got to be a little give and take on this. Listen, guys, you know, I'm all in on football. When I'm there, I'm going to give you everything I have, but there's going to be some time where I'm not there. Um, and, and so for him, it's it's just making sure that when you're present, you're present. I don't think it's necessarily – it doesn't have to be a detriment because of how the spring set up um, at some of those positions. The – you know, I, like I said earlier – I think you want to wrap the quarterback position up in the spring. And again, that was part of my consideration and how I was going to handle baseball and football. But for some other positions, um, some of those decisions might not be made until the fall, right? Mm -hmm. Where it's in a little bit more of a competitive situation. A lot of guys are getting reps. So it's for, for, for him, I wouldn't say it's as, it's as big of a deal being a, I, I guess I'd say a, a non-skill player, you know, you throw probably wide receiver, running back, quarterback um, would be the big ones where, you know, your presence is probably needed a little bit more. So, you know, I, I really enjoyed by my junior year when I kind of had the schedule figured out, that was when I was, I really was the most confident in both sports because you pull some of that momentum I mean, the season I had that spring in baseball really propelled me mm. into the summer and fall where I was like, I mean, I was walking around with my chest puffed out, like, <laughs> you know, I'm getting in the huddle and I'm talking to these guys, you know, I'm like, I'm a bad dude right now. And, and that's kind of how I approached it. So I think it can be helpful. And, you know, f for me, what was great is like, like I said, as far as not really having been in a competitive situation since my my senior year in high school that my junior year I mean I was obviously I was an everyday starter on the baseball field so it was like okay I'm back into my routine of playing all the time I kind of got my mojo back there is something to be said about that I don't know how familiar you are with um the lacrosse um demands but Jordan Faison unlike Buckner Jordan Faison is a frontline player he scored five goals in the first two games um he was a walk-on in football but you saw what he did in the second half of the season when they activated him and so forth what do you think is the right the key to striking a balance for him because they do have they don't play they don't have games on practice days but they have practice on practice days and, and they have some big time opponents coming up during spring football. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I hate to underplay spring practice, um, you know, but when, when competitions are going on, there's, you know, it's, a, it's probably more important, but for guys that, you know, he had some success, he's established um, you have a little more leeway. I mean, you know, Jeff, Jeff Samarja would be a good example of that. I mean, you know, he, he could miss stuff and be all right. It wasn't going to be a big deal. Um, and Jeff may be a little more of an anomaly just because <laughs> Jeff, Jeff, if, if, if you catch my dream, mean, Jeff's, Jeff's approach to it was, it was, it was hilarious and fun to watch. You know, he was one of the few guys that on the field just between him and Zipikowski, 
there weren't too many there weren't too many players that would kind of look at Weiss and be like, yeah, whatever, you're still going to play me on Saturday. It's not a big deal. So there there is an element to that that if you're established to a certain extent, there's probably some more freedom. Um, you know, I look back at my career and the coaching staff of of both sports. It matters. Um, mm-hmm. You know, when I was recruited, you had Ty Willingham, who was a big two sport proponent. Um, and Paul Maneri, I mean, he was, he was the reason why I went to Notre Dame and cause I was very upfront from, you know, with him from the start, like, Hey, I want to play both. He's like, all right, well, I will call, I will call the football program today and, and you'll be, you know, they'll be in touch with you tomorrow. So when I look back at my career, I I'm, I'm curious how it would have played out had I had Paul for all four years and Willingham staff. Because I think that they would have been a little more in tune to finding that balance earlier versus, you know, for the first two years, I was doing everything with, with both teams. Um, so, you know, as long as the lacrosse coaches and then Freeman and his staff are communicating through those things, and I get back to kind of how I explained the quarterback competition too, is then that has to be communicated to the team as well, because you don't want guys who are in a competitive situation um, to develop some negative feelings. If the guy they're supposedly competing against isn't there and they feel like, you know, it's, it's not on the, it's not on the even playing field. And then when they show up, they're getting a ton of reps, right? So it's just communicating that. Um, I think that that's the biggest thing to make sure that everyone's on the same page. Evan, before we let you go, can you update our listeners on what you are up to these days? Yeah, so I live over in Bristol, Indiana. Um, I got I got married a little over a year ago. Uh, my wife, Julie, uh, she is a musician and uh, also is in the firearms industry. And then I, uh, last June, made a career change, was not on my radar at all, and now I'm selling uh, the world's best pontoons. And uh, they are made over in Bristol, Indiana. The, the company's name is Barletta Boats. So I've been, uh, I'm, in, I'm in show season right now, so pretty much every weekend I'm, I'm on the road somewhere. Uh, I'm in Ottawa, Canada for a, a four-day boat show. About to head over to the convention center and sling some pontoons. So, <laughs> got a, a six-year-old daughter, and then I've got two bonus kids now, an eight and a thirteen-year-old. So, we're busy running around doing jujitsu and theater, um, and uh, and and you know when when we can kick back and relax a little bit. Do you still do the training? Uh, so I do uh, hitting lessons once a week. Okay. Um, I, I don't have a facility anymore. But I still love coaching, uh, so I do hitting lessons. It's mainly with softball players now, and uh, it was—I don't know—it was maybe five years ago, six years ago. There was a, a a demand there because a couple of athletes that I was working with, Erin uh, Koffel, who's a Bremen girl, she's mm-hmm. oh yeah. At Kentucky. She's a, yeah, she's a, I think Flow Sports rated her as the, the seventh best softball player in the nation going into this year. Just an absolute stud. I mean, she started at shortstop and bat at the top of their lineup, you know, for the past three years. And 
Um, I worked with her when she was at Bremen and she was already a great player. It was just, Hey, we made a couple of tweaks Mm-hmm. And really, it was try to hit the ball over the fence. <laughs> um, and and uh, you know she was she was already hitting lasers all across the field. It just she wasn't elevating it enough. And mm-hmm. I loved working with her and her dad. You know, you don't always get that. You know, they had a great rapport, and I, I was you know really blessed to to at times kind of be pulled into that. And it really was just talking baseball or softball and talking swing mechanics and approach um and so between her and then callie hevelin who went to three rivers and callie missed a year for covid but she hit i think 29 or 30 home runs her senior year it's just something oh. silly and so she oh. was like seven seven short of the all-time record in michigan but and, and missed an entire year tyler um, wants she, to send the chicago white Sox over <laughs> yeah, no uh, uh, there you go so so Ka- callie's uh callie's at alabama uh, she's, um, I think, she, I think they moved her to third base this year. Actually, no, sorry. She's their, their starting second baseman, uh, this year. So, um, you know, obviously when you do that, you start to get a lot of people that want to hit with you. So I still yeah. do that on, on Mondays and, uh, occasionally we'll do some quarterback stuff usually during the summer when my schedule allows, but just, you know, some small group training with some middle school and high school guys locally. Awesome. Evan. Well, we really appreciate you taking time to talk to us and, uh, Good luck uh, slinging those pontoons. Sounds good. Thank you, guys. Have a good one. Before we get to our question segment, I wanted to remind our listeners of our subscription promo for InsideIndieSports.com. We're offering a 30-day free trial to our podcast listeners who want to try out a subscription to the site. That will get you access to all of our premium content, the Insider Lounge message board. Um, you don't have to wait for the next podcast. That's a question. And right now, we're I'm running through all of Notre Dame's top targets in the 2025 class with the heat index. So it'll get you access to that as well. You can take advantage of this offer by using promo code NDPOD. That's N-D-P-O-D when you sign up for a subscription on InsideNDSports.com. You can also find a link to the deal in the podcast description or show notes. All right, now it's time for questions. You can submit questions to us on Twitter or the Insider Lounge message board before every podcast. I'm at TJamesND and Eric's at ND. First one we have, Eric, is from SJB75 on the Insider Lounge. The college football playoff is undergoing a transition. Do you, the, to the two of you believe Jack Swarbrick positioned Notre Dame well for the next two seasons, or could Notre Dame have done better? I don't know that Notre Dame could have done better without it being a knockdown, drag-em-out fight. If you remember when they were trying to put the 12-team playoff together, um, they they were trying to do it in a pretty small time frame. Then there was some pushback, and then it got adopted anyways. But um, I think those fights could have dragged on for years. I, I'm satisfied with what Notre Dame did at that point. Where my concern is, is some of the conversations that came out Wednesday at the meeting mm-hmm. with the athletic directors and Jack Swarbrick in terms of where this is going to go on in 2026 and beyond, there's talk about multiple qualifiers from the Big Ten, automatic qualifiers from the Big Ten and the SEC, as many as four each. And then there was also thrown in, hey, maybe we need to expand to 14. If they stayed at 12 and those two conferences got eight, then you have four spots for the Big 12, the group of five, uh, ACC, and somebody else's 
uh, at large, which would be Notre Dame or from one of those other conferences, not the SEC and the Big Ten. 14 makes it a little bit more palatable. So my concern is more where this is headed 2026 and beyond than it is the next two seasons. I'm good with that. Yeah, when I first read that report, I was like, man, this does not sound favorable to Notre Dame. Now, what is being discussed and what actually happens are are, are two different things sometimes. Right. So um, we'll see how that continues to progress. But um, the more automatic qualifiers, in my opinion, the worse it is for, for Notre Dame. Um, and we'll see how that plays out. But in terms of the 2024 and 2025 playoff, I, I, I don't know what how Notre Dame could have done better. I think... I know there have been plenty of people that are upset that you, you can't be a top four seed and get a bye, but I, I always counter with, okay, what's what was Notre Dame's leverage? Are they just going to say they sit out? And then, there's the, and then everyone's like, fine, we'll just do a playoff without you. Like, I, I just don't know what Notre Dame can do short of joining a conference to, to get more of a voice. Um, and, and, I, they, I, and we should point out, they don't have to play in a conference championship game where most right. of those other teams will. Right, and that's that's why Notre Dame felt comfortable with this, that, hey, well, fine, we, we won't get a bye, but our bye will be not playing a conference championship and, and potentially eliminating ourselves from being able to, to get into the playoff. And these conference championship games are getting much more difficult. There were times where it was not even as difficult as some of the games within their own division. There right. usually was a weak division. Especially in the Big it's Ten. Not, yeah, it's not that way anymore. Even with the ACC to yeah. a large extent. Um, and, and so now you're going to have the top two teams, and there's no divisions, and so that that's going to be a pretty formidable game. Although with that discussion we were talking about from Wednesday, I think the, with, with more automatic qualifiers than that, then I think there's a t- talk of conference championship games going away. So then, then Notre Dame's like advantage of not having to play a conference championship game goes away as well. So that's just another thing that I think um, would would hurt Notre Dame or, or hurt the. Pers- I think as long them. as you can work pop tarts into the postseason picture. <laughs> All right. Uh, next question is from at Mr. Joe Seiler. Do you have any insights about a potential GA to help with safeties? Any chance they'd consider someone like Zibby or Sean Crawford? So, you know, Notre Dame's looking at a few things here. I think there's a chance that Marty Biaggi's um, role gets expanded and he would help coach safeties. That doesn't mean they still wouldn't pursue a grad assistant. I think that's a great idea, too. He's got some defensive back coaching early in his career. He was a cornerbacks coach. He was a defensive backs coach. He was a co-defensive coordinator early in his career. And Brian Mason helped out some with the linebackers when he was at Notre Dame. Um, and he also helped with positions at Cincinnati as well. So it wouldn't be. But um, specifically, Sean Crawford and Zibikowski, let's look at the, the possibility of that either now or in the future. I mean, Sean Crawford's not even in coaching. If you're going to get a grad assistant like that, you're you're not looking for um, somebody that's entering into the coaching business. You want somebody that has some experience coaching. I I think the world is Sean Crawford and -hmm. his potential if he wants to coach. And I remember thinking, I asked him, I said, you'd be a pretty good coach. What do you think about that? And he's like, nah, he may change his mind eventually. 
Uh, Zubikowski isn't very deep in his coaching career either. He's been everything but an astronaut, I think, since he left the <laughs> NFL. Um, he was a quality control guy at Western Michigan, and he did a lot of special teams work with them. And then he was at Brown this past year. We actually had him on our podcast, um, and he is coaching safeties at Brown. Would he leave Brown to come to Notre Dame? Uh, to be a grad assistant, probably with the way that there's not the cap on grad assistant money. But again, I don't know that the timing of that fit would be perfect right now. I think, again, you'd maybe want somebody that's a little bit more uh, seasoned. I love Zipikowski, so I would take him at my house just to <laughs> raise hell and, and make me laugh and so forth. I, I think he'll be really good, but I think... I'd want to see if he's going to stick with it and so forth. Um, he's got a young family right now. And again, he switched careers quite a bit to this point. So I don't want to say anything bad about Zippy because he's <laughs> yeah, good luck with that. Favorites. Yeah. And, and, I, and he's still good at boxing. So, and I love the family. I mean, Ed Zabikowski is one of my all time favorite people in any, any realm of life. So, uh, but I just don't see it happening right now. I wouldn't rule it out, but I just I don't think that's a trajectory I think Notre Dame is going to pursue. Yeah, and I don't honestly I, the the rules of what who's allowed to be a graduate assistant elude me. I, I I don't know that I have a grasp on it. It seems like older and older you can be farther and farther away from your playing career, where that that didn't always used to be the case. So I, I don't know if Zibikowski would be able to qualify for a GA position anymore or not. Um, so that could be a, a loophole or, or a potential obstacle there. But yeah, I mean, I think I understand when fans like think of names and former players, but the the best coaches aren't always necessarily people, you know, I mean, no one knew who Chris O'Leary was when he came to Notre Dame. Um, and he made it, made quite, quite the role for himself and was a valuable, um, analyst and graduate assistant before he ended up getting promoted. So, um, I don't. I don't know who it's going to be. I haven't heard anything one way or the other. But um, I, I. I just wouldn't. I, I. I wouldn't overreact if it's someone that you've never heard of, um, because that doesn't necessarily mean they can't. They can't coach. Next question is from at Charles W. Wolf. Has a recruiting class at Notre Dame or elsewhere, for that matter, ever filled up as fast as the twenty twenty five group? I think Tyler probably has the stats right off the top of his head. My only recollection of in, in recent times, and remember the pandemic affected a couple of cycles because evaluations were a lot slower, but Texas Tech in a, a couple of cycles ago was in the top 10 of the team rankings because they had so much more, so many more commitments than everybody else. And I think that was just like two years ago when KK Smith was in that class for a while. Um, but I can't remember it being 17 in February with, with a whole year to go basically in the cycle. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that there's another example. I, I, it's, it's not something that's easy to look up, um, in terms of like, this is, this is the record setting pace or whatever. At N Notre Dame for its own is, is, is pretty aggressive and been, has been pretty aggressive for the last few years. And I think part of this is the new recruiting cycle and calendar where official visits can come earlier 
um, and more and more kids are, are visiting earlier in their career. Um, so I, I don't, I don't know that 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 there's anyone else that's been faster. Notre Dame's, um, last, last cycle they had, they didn't get their seventeenth commitment until June second. Um, so that's and Notre Dame was was pretty high up there in terms of the amount of commits. The 2023 class, I was trying to multitask and look that up, which is if it sounded like it probably sounded like I was multitasking. Um, it did either that or you <laughs> were thinking about Evan Sharpley's comment I think, about being I, able to fart footballs. Farther than <laughs> yeah, he created quite the visual knows. for us there. Um, the Texas Tech 2023 class uh, it had 13 commits in February. Um, so I don't, I, I don't know. I mean, that would, maybe that's the closest. I, I don't know what the standard is. It would take a lot, a lot of time that I didn't actually get to spend researching to try to figure that out if this is the record. Um, but, uh, Tyler's in shock that the Notre Dame men's basketball team won last night. That's why his brain is moving slower. <laughs> Not only one, but one by 20 points. Um, and so, uh, but anyways, this is they're off to a very fast start, no doubt. Um, and I, there's still, I mean, the number obviously the amount of room that's left is is shrinking, but they're they're still going after a number of guys. It's not like this is over yet for Notre Dame. So an important couple of months still coming up here. All right, next question is from Marie Biaforia at Biaforia underscore Marie. How many points per game does the offense need next year in order to compete for a national championship or to make the playoffs and win a game? What is the highest points per game average you think they are capable of attaining, and what would be the floor? I think, Marie, you're looking at it a little bit in um, a view that doesn't apply, and this is why I'll say that. Notre Dame last year averaged 39.2 points a game. That was seventh in the country. Here's what the playoff teams averaged. Washington was 13th at 36.0. Michigan was 14th at 35.9. Texas was 15th at 35.8. And Alabama was 23rd at 34.0. So they averaged more points than all four playoff teams. Where Notre Dame has to be good is when they play elite defenses. You look at last year. When they played Ohio State was the best defensive team they played. They were third in total defense. They scored 14 points against them. Um, Clemson was a top 10 defense last year. Notre Dame struggled against them. Louisville was number 21. They struggled against them. So they're going to have to be good in those kind of games. Who's the good defenses next year? The transfer portal and coaching changes affect these more than they used to. Mm-hmm. But Texas A&M at 19th was the best defense that last year that Notre Dame will face. This year, Louisville is 21. Uh, and then they play two other teams in the top 50, Florida State 28 and Navy 44. So it's being good against the – against the best defenses. That's how I answer the question. I'll, I'm interested to see what Tyler Tyler's math looks like. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I didn't sp- do a ton of math to, to come up with numbers, um, but I did come up with numbers. Uh, I said 
Notre Dame would need to average like 35, probably at least 35 points per game to, to be a reasonable competitor for a national championship. I think in terms of the ceiling, I think Notre Dame could get up to 40 I, I, with its schedule. It's schedule is something that, that, that like, that's why Notre Dame scored so many points last year. The, the, the weakness of the schedule beyond those top teams allowed for it to score a lot of points in those games. And that's what carries your average across the season. So I think Notre Dame could do something similar again this year. Um, even though we do, I do have questions about the offensive line. Um, and certainly you, you have no idea what the passing game is going to look like. We have ideas of what it may look like and what it's hopes to look like. But in terms of a floor, like, what would you would you say Alabama was at like thirty four like a little yeah. under thirty five thirty four like I guess Notre Dame in theory because of how good its defense could be could be like it could win a lot of games and not have to have a huge scoring margin right so like it, just to get in the playoffs I mean, it doesn't have to be a ton so I put it at like thirty two um like Notre Dame could average thirty two points per game and still make it into the playoff um but I I think Notre Dame would certainly need to be able to be playing at a higher level with its offense in the playoff to be able to, to win, win a game or two. Yeah. The defense is going to be, is going to put Notre Dame in a pretty good light. There are years where Notre Dame needs to play complimentary football more with its offense to protect its defense. Um, This defense reminds me of the 2012 year where Notre Dame could say, you know what, we're going to, it's fourth and one. We're going to punt here and pin them down around the one. And we think we'll get the ball back instead of going forward at midfield and maybe giving, not getting it and then giving the other team the ball at midfield. I think we'll see uh, more situations like that. All right. And our final question is from LDL Go Irish on the Insider Lounge. This is a last season wrap up question rolled into the first game of the 2024 season. How much louder will it be? on the road this season at Kyle Field in front of an incredibly large 12th man crowd than it was at Wallace Wade Stadium. Obviously, Marcus Freeman will have implemented changes to handle the crowd, and Mike Dembrock has played in several raucous SEC home fields, which will be an advantage. The staff needs to get whoever starts at quarterback and elsewhere ready for that environment. I believe that a Mike Elko defense will outcoach a Joe Rudolph O-line, especially considering the crowd noise. How will Mike Dembrock's offensive line experience help Joe Rudolph meet that challenge of a hostile crowd with new starters on the O-line and a creative coach who specializes in havoc plays and stopping the run on the other side. Well, there's, I think two separate questions there. Um, You know, playing in front of a big crowd, there's the mechanics of being able to operate your offense with the noise. Mm -hmm. And then there's, playing in a hostile environment, you walk in and you see a hundred thousand people or whatever. And, uh, and you haven't had a lot of playing experience and so forth. Um, I think from the mechanics of dealing with nonverbal communication and noise and so forth, I mean, Mike Denbrock has been through that everywhere he's been. And he certainly, right. They've played at Kyle field during his time at LSU. They played at least one game there. Um, and he's played in some very difficult venues and he knows how to, how to execute those things. It was a shock to me at how unprepared Notre Dame was for 
Duke on the road and the noise that they got there. I, I still boggles my mind that there wasn't somebody with institutional knowledge that said, hey, the, the clapping isn't going to work here. Um, as far as, you know, getting the offensive line to execute against a Mike Elko defense, I think I feel a lot more comfortable with that situation with Mike Denbrock being the offensive coordinator versus Jared Parker. Mike Denbrock's experience as an offensive coordinator, also Mike Denbrock's experience as a offensive line coach and a tight ends coach, I think he is just going to bring more to the table in terms of uh, dealing with that. I also think if Riley Leonard is the quarterback, which I think he will be, there are things that he can do as a running quarterback that can mitigate a little bit of your offensive line's growth curve uh, just by being able to get outside and and uh, run. He, I, I know that Duke has had some good offensive linemen, but his sack rate is super low uh, for his career. He doesn't get sacked very often. So um, I hope that answered it. But again, I wouldn't tie in. I don't think that Notre Dame's offensive line is going to walk into Kyle Field and you know, poop their pants because there's a big crowd. They're used to um, playing um, in stadiums with bigger crowds and loud noise. Uh, yeah. Although there are, there's going to be some offensive tackles playing that have never played uh, in an atmosphere or anything like that. Um, so I think there's that 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 presents a challenge, no doubt. It's going to be a lot louder in Kyle Field than it was in Wallace Wade Stadium. Um, I, I don't I don't know how much of Notre Dame's issues at Duke were specific to the actual decibel level of the Duke crowd versus maybe a, a lack of focus um going into that game or week. Um and you would like to imagine the focus will be very high going into your season opener. Um, but that it that doesn't necessarily make it mean it's gonna be easier, but certainly like you mentioned, the experience of Mike Dembrock and Joe Rudolph and and Riley Leonard as a quarterback, um, I think uh, helps helps that as well. Even though he's playing with new players, he does have experience leading an offense into a hostile environment. So um, it's certainly not going to be easy, but um, I don't think that's going to be the difference in the game. All right, that is it for today's episode of the Inside ND Sports Podcast. If you don't already, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other popular podcast platforms. If you like what you hear, give us a star rating, leave a review, and share our podcast feed with someone who can hit a seeing eye single. As I mentioned earlier, we're offering a 30-day free trial to our podcast listeners who want to try out a subscription to InsideIndieSports.com, so please take advantage of that with code NDPOD, N-D-P-O-D. We are scheduled to talk to offensive coordinator Mike Dembrock and linebacker Max Bola on Friday. So that should give us plenty to talk about come Monday on Football Never Sleeps over on YouTube. Until then, stick with InsideIndieSports.com for all your Notre Dame coverage needs. <laughs> <laughs>